Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey everyone, welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney, Paul Sarker. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. I hope everyone had a great Memorial Day weekend. I know I did not, because I've been sick, unfortunately. But the good thing is, you get to catch up on all the shows, maybe watch a movie or two. I'm watching Fast 10. I don't really want to watch Fast 10, but I feel like I have to. Paul, what are you watching? I watched Little Mermaid. It was date night with Jessica. And Little Mermaid, honestly, I can't compare it to the 1989 animated classic because A, I was a kid, and that relaunched the whole, you could say, era of Disney. It was a classic. I mean, it's a classic. And then you have Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, Lion King. One of the best eras ever. Yeah. I think there were some really strong performances. Halle Bailey was incredibly talented as a singer, I think maybe in some of the dramatic scenes. I really didn't get the emotion, but Jessica pointed out that she's a mermaid, so like maybe she doesn't have emotions <laughs> uh, in that way. So I, I got to give her like A minus, <laughs> B plus to A minus performance. Sebastian was my favorite character. Who played Sebastian? Because he was iconic, obviously, in, in the animated version. David Diggs. And then Melissa McCarthy played Ursula. And she was also good. And, you know, Jess and I were talking about it after. You know, we're like, you know, you get so wrapped up. You're singing the songs and everything after a movie like that. And uh, Melissa McCarthy is like a comedian, but she really did play the villain well. I think. I mean, I I just didn't like her as a character because she's the villain. She's not really supposed to be likable. So I thought she did well. I didn't know she had that range. You know, it was good. It was like beautiful, but you could tell they spent a lot of money on it. And I just didn't think it had the soul of the 1989 film, but it was good. Parts, it felt like they were just checking boxes. And that would be my one criticism of it. I think it's a good movie. I would recommend you see it, but it's not like an epic. I rewatched The Lion King on a plane. I rewatched Aladdin recently and they still stand up. Like I think you could kids would still enjoy them now. The animated version, which I get why Disney's making new ones. Obviously it's like IP want to potentially profit off it. Oh, so there's a, a couple new generations that don't know anything about these animated movies, but the animated ones hold up so well. I don't think the live action ones can really compare to them. The only one I thought that was good was the Jungle Book remake that John Favreau did because I think the original Jungle Book animated movie, it didn't really have much to it. There wasn't much plot to it. And it was so right. old that when they did the live action remake, I was like, oh my God, there's an actual storyline here. There's It just was flushed out more. Well, Favreau... I don't know if we can say he's underrated, but he's like low-key an amazing director. I mean, you think yeah. of what he's done. He also did Lion King, right? The the live action Lion King. I didn't see that one though. Oh, that was good. It was good. I mean Okay, it was good. Okay. I just love the animated version. So it was good. I, I think the Lion King animated, probably the favorite movie I've I saw as a kid. It's one of the best ever made. Um, 
And you still cry every time. When, <laughs> yeah, that and Aladdin for me. I don't want to think about it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. It's a great movie. Um, poignant. The Little Mer- It's supposed to do good numbers. I found it entertaining. I think it was funny um, at times. Obviously, the songs. There's a Lin-Manuel Miranda feature in there too. That's right. He was involved. He was involved with it, right? I think he's he- the chef, but then he also he he did a song. Oh, okay, okay. It's not Encanto. I, Encanto, I really, really liked. It's not as, but you know, Encanto was animated. Yeah, well, I mean, look, Disney still has the ability to make, like, Encanto is great. Like, they have the ability to make great originals again. And um, The Little Mermaid, I think, just had so much talk about it, obviously. Well, they had the feature during the Oscars. And I remember when we did our yeah, Oscars yeah, recap episode, it. it was like, Wait, did this win an Oscar? Why are they <laughs> doing like a three-minute ad for this movie during the Oscars? But it was it was good. And I don't know if it'll be an Oscar contender, but it's pretty good. Well, uh, moving on to a, a, a lesser note and, and an unfortunate passing. The world lost Tina Turner on May 24th. She died at the age of 83, had been suffering from a long illness. She died in her home in Zurich, Switzerland. Such an incredible career. I, I think that's what... Basically, everyone was just celebrating her. It was like, this woman has done so much. Queen of rock and roll, 12 Grammys, multiple hits, 100 million records sold. Um, she was the first black artist and first woman on the cover of Rolling Stone. So big props to Tina Turner. So I never saw her live. I think she was a little bit before my time. Her her sort of like apex was when you know I was like, very young, but she 80s. had a seven decade career. Yeah, 80s, seven decade careers, a span seven decades. I mean, it's really like, I, I hate to say they don't make them like they used to because I mean, Tina is like a tough they don't. standard to, to follow. And yeah, we have like Beyonce and, and whatever, but I just, I, I think the electricity that like Tina Turner exuded, just seeing clips of her perform. And just like that presence that she had on stage, I don't yeah. think there's anyone out there today that has that. And I don't, you know, know if future generations will really be able to appreciate that. But you're right. I mean, humble beginnings, being born in Tennessee, pre World War II, and you know, she didn't have a TV, obviously, in the, in the early '40s. But she had radio, and then occasionally, I think there was a white family in her neighborhood, and she saw a TV occasionally, and saw what a star was. And, you know, it's really troubling the whole like domestic violence thing that they had 15 yeah. years with Ike Turner yeah. and he discovered her and they were an act and they, she had a lot of hits with Ike Turner, but the domestic abuse and reading up about that and, you know, he would apparently beat her up before shows like pretty badly. And she's, you know, she had the strength to end it with him and move on and really resurrect her career. So she had two careers. Like she was, she had great songs with Ike Turner and Proud Mary probably being my favorite from that era. And then she comes back as a solo artist. And then, you know, it's like, what's love got to do with it, right? Like it's just a secondhand emotion. But you're right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, top hundred. Yeah. She's on the list of the top hundred artists. She sold a hundred million record. I didn't realize this until we were prepping. I, she played for 180,000 people at a concert once. That's crazy. I mean, that was the era, like, kind of similar to when Michael Jackson would play to these insane crowds or, you know, when Queen would play these big shows. Like, those were just massive, massive audiences. And also, you know, 
the time where records would sell. And so selling a hundred million records, like that is, that is a lot. Pre-streaming. Yeah. I mean, it's a whole different. Yeah. Pre-streaming. I mean, it, it puts you on a whole other level. I think one of her albums specifically, it was um, Private Dancer sold 10 million in the US and 8 million in the UK. And that was, that's almost 20 million in just two countries. So pretty incredible career. And then, and then of course, there's the movie, What's Love Got to Do With It, where Angela Bassett was nominated for an Academy Award, who played Tina Turner. Tina Turner was in Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome, opposite Mel Gibson, of course. Great franchise, yeah. So, you know, really incredible career. Really, really. And then she was just like there. She was kind of in and out. I, I remember like maybe this was like late 90s, early 2000s when I was overseas. Like she just always, she was like Oprah's best friend. She's always on Oprah. Uh, Oprah's copying Tina Turner's hair. She had the Broadway show that's been a big hit in New York City. So I would say she did pretty well for herself. I was reading when we were prepping for this. So Angela Bassett played her in What's Love Got to Do With It in 1995. And I believe, uh, I don't know the name of the actress who played her in the Broadway show, but both of them had to get in the best shape of their life to even just try to portray Tina Turner because she just like, she's just, a bolt of lightning. So, uh, you know, yeah. rest in paradise, Tina Turner. Yeah. Yeah. And it was well, one last thing. It was really cool because on Beyonce's website, they put a nice little in memory for Tina Turner on the website, which I thought was pretty classy. So yes. Uh, RIP Tina Turner. Great career. Let's take a break and we'll get back and talk about succession. And of course the launch of max. Paul, it's one of the uh, most anticipated finales ever. And by the time our audience hears this, it will already have happened. But Succession series finale is coming. It is one of the most anticipated finales of any show. Just an amazing run this show has had. But at the same time, it, it also coincides with the launch of Max, which is the platform formerly known as HBO Max launching as Max, which is HBO plus Discovery, all-in-one consolidated platform. And uh, yeah, it was an an interesting way to go about things. A little technical difficulties here and there, but let's start out with Succession first. Uh, Incredible show created by Jesse Armstrong, amazing cast, uh, ensemble, really, really great writing. I mean, this is a fan favorite, um, obviously, I think. I'm a big fan. I've, I've watched every episode. I'm anticipating the end of this. And yeah, I, I think, again, it's just the show who knows when to end it right. Uh, and I think that hopefully everyone will be happy with the ending, including myself. Obviously, loosely or maybe not so loosely based on a very popular media mogul and his family, which has an outsized influence on culture and news and business. So you know, not naming any names, but this arc of succession has been tied to this family. And we talked about this, I believe, episode 211, when they knew that this was going to be the final season, the fourth and final season of succession. Jesse Armstrong had said, you know, we could have kept going, but we wanted to end it right. And it felt natural. And he said that he'd been thinking about the end Like in his head, it was three or four seasons ideally. And potentially, like if it went longer, they would have had to sacrifice some quality, which they could have done. Yeah. But this was how he wanted to end it on his own terms. I think it's just a 
coincidence that it's sort of ending the era of HBO Max as we knew it, and now it's leading to Max. I think the thing about TV is like you don't want it to end, right? From a revenue perspective, like the more seasons you can get out of a show, the more profitable it is because a lot there's a lot of costs on the front end, and there's a lot of you know uncertainty and risk when you're doing a pilot. And so if you're in three, four, five seasons, usually the studio and the creators and the showrunners they want to keep it going until it would either run its natural course or until it loses popularity. So Succession is kind of going out on the top, which is yeah. rare, but it it happens. And these shows are tough to end. I know yeah. I'm in the minority view in that I like Game of Thrones, including the final two seasons. And mm. a lot of people just are like, well, it left a bad taste in my mouth. The way it ended just didn't do justice to the first seven seasons. I guess that's a valid criticism, although I don't necessarily agree with it, but I wouldn't say I'm like a super fan. But how you end a show can really have an impact on where it stands and sort of like the test of time. So a show can go from like great to timeless if it ends really well, like Breaking Bad or Sopranos. Breaking Bad was a phenomenal ending. Right. And as we record this, we don't actually know how it's going to end, but you got to think it'll be good. I I can say this. It's not... And no spoilers, because this is not what we do here, but I'm not the biggest, like, at first I was like, I don't know if I like this season, but it's not that I don't like what's happening, or I don't like the writing, or the acting. It's like, I really realize I don't like some of these characters, and it's, I think part of the way the show is designed is you're you're, you're constantly flipping around, like, who do you like? Some people disappoint you, then they impress you, they disappoint you, and it's kind of this relationship that the main character Logan Roy has with his kids, like together the kids are great when they're actually working together individually, they're all just a mess. And I think it's represented in this last season, but the acting and just the way the development is happening and it all really takes place over the course of a very short period of time, like two weeks, that's the whole season. And it's really amazing actually how they've done it And, um, you know, especially when you listen to the podcast after the show, the amount of experts that they brought in just to make it as real as possible, it's just a really impressive, just the work they put into that show. And I I think, honestly, it's some of the best acting that has ever existed on any television show amongst an entire ensemble. I agree. Like, the cast is insane, but, like, Jeremy Strong and Brian Cox are just, like, two aces. Greg's great. Shiv's great. Roman, Connor, Tom. Yeah. They're all well cast, but Jeremy Strong, apparently he's a method actor. And I guess that kind of ruffles some feathers because he can get into character and and be maybe like not the most warm and fuzzy person on set. But as a fan of the show, it really comes across how seriously he takes his craft. And then Brian Cox is like, I always tell Jess even though I've said it like a hundred times, it's like, oh yeah, well he was in Super Troopers. Like that's where I first remember him. I think he was in X2. I think he was Striker. I, I remember him as Striker from X2. That's where I remember Yeah, him. but like what a tour de force as Logan Roy. Performance of his career. One of the best characters ever. And I think um, just to sum it up, it's crazy that there's one episode left. I'm like, how are they going to fix all this in one episode? But I like it like that. I think it actually works this time. I'm going to put you on the spot. Where do you put it in your top TV shows? Is it top 10, top 20, top 50? It's top three. Top three? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you put me on the spot. So, t- yeah, I put it in my top three. Okay. 
I say top 15. Okay. I mean, that's, uh, you know, you put me on. You had There's a time lot of to TV think. shows. There are a lot of time. I have that time to think. But I think in terms of like, if I put them all, like acting, ensemble, all the seasons together, you know, there wasn't really any misses. How many times I've rewatched it. Now, I've rewatched season one, two, and three. I can watch those over and over again. We'll see if I can watch season four. That's how I also put things in my top. Top three might, like, I got to give it some time. But yeah, I would say top three for me. It's it's tough because uh, I'm not going to go back on what I said, but I'm going to keep it in my top three. We'll figure out where it's I mean, I did put you on the spot. You could, I mean, that's high praise considering how many TV shows there are. So yeah. top three is yeah. like, you. yeah. Well, I, I, I'd put it sad at, day put it when at, it ends. <laughs> yeah, sad day when it ends. So you have it as the best HBO show or no? To me, it's between that and The Sopranos as the best HBO show. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, if it's the top three, there's not that much room to maneuver. So (laughs) (laughs) as we were saying at the start of this segment, so Succession is, I think we can safely say, the best HBO Max series. I mean, there's Euphoria and there's a handful of others, but like Succession is, at least I associate it with HBO Max because I remember... During the pandemic, Jess and I were in LA for a couple months because we got out of New York. We wanted a little bit more space and we were having dinner with a a client, really good friend who I've known for over a decade and he's a restaurant owner. And at the dinner, there was someone there whose brother wrote for Succession. And so I had kind of heard about it because, you know, I'm in the media space and I, I knew it was based on, you know, a prominent media family. And then later that night we went home or maybe it was the next day watched the first episode and this was so like maybe May of 2020 and we had to binge the whole season like immediately because it was just that good. And then that led to season two and for six months, all we watched was like HBO Max shows, right? Because I was behind. I hadn't seen Game of Thrones, crazy, I know. Uh, The Wire, Westworld, Chernobyl, all the stuff. Rick and Morty, they had Rick and Morty. And so that's how I view like the sort of like the second half of 2020 in the pandemic, you know, everything was shut down. It was a lot of watching streaming stuff, right? Like Tiger King and HBO Max. And and it's kind of sad for me to think that HBO Max doesn't exist anymore. And now it's Max. I agree, man. But yeah. You know, I, I we've talked about this, like why they did it. But brand recognition matters a lot. And I think when it actually went down, well, one, they switched it to a whole new app. It wasn't even, I thought the app was going to update to just being Max. Yeah, I thought it was just going to be a name change. And then clearly but it was Now you got to download a whole new app. Like what makes you think that that's like a frictionless process for people? And here's the thing. Luckily you do it in the same week that succession finale is happening. So everyone has to do it to watch it. And and that makes sense from a strategy. Let me just give people the background because we did talk about this in, in episode 215. So if you're just tuning in for the first time, Warner Brothers Discovery, they merged. So Warner Brothers took HBO Max and they rebranded it Max, created a new app. And now that also has a lot of the content from Discovery Plus. And the idea is that it's supposed to have a broader general entertainment appeal to all segments of the family. So it's got content that's like reality-based and it also has the same content that was in HBO Max, but it's branded Max. There are HBOs prominently featured in the user interface once you open the new app, but it's not called HBO Max. 
what we're talking about now is basically like, was this the right move? Time will tell. But in the the moment the rebrand happened was May 23rd. And it's a massive undertaking, rebranding something that has like, I don't know, 80 to 100 million users. But like you said, they, they didn't just change the name once you logged in. They made you get a whole new app. Well, they've already made us do that before, right? Because they had there was like HBO Go, HBO Now, then there was HBO Max. We're like, okay, guys, um, this is getting annoying. But finally, we finally have HBO Max. Everything makes sense. Now you want us to do Max like... And I know people had some difficulties with, as you were saying, some technical difficulties. That will happen, of course. And obviously, glad they did it not on the weekend that a big finality is happening. But I think just from like the Twitter uh, sphere and and some of these like um, little small communities or niche communities where people are talking about this, everyone's just kind of like, why would you get rid of like one of the best brands? that has such recognition with like amazing talent. And we've talked about this before. We're like, well, HBO is associated with a bigger, older, mature audience. At the same time though, it was a bit, it was a bit sad to see something so epic disappear. Um, and, and we'll, and we'll see what happens. This guy on Twitter posted HBO max. And then it's like arrow max. And he says, your move peacock. Maybe peacock just calls itself cock. Or P? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the joke. <laughs> I don't I don't know which one of those you go with. But uh, <laughs> and another thing that happened with the new app and really bad timing on all of this. So they moved the writer and director credits oh in the show God, information yeah. into one category called creators. And they did this nope. during the WGA strike. And so part yeah. of the whole like you know, like the the angst of the writers is these big studio heads run these behemoths with these billion-dollar content spends or several billion-dollar content spends. They don't value the individual creator and our contributions. They just want us to be this nameless army of people who create content and don't get recognized. I know they're technically on strike, but like what's one way you could maybe not piss them off would be to give them the proper credit, right? So it's like you give them their credit and their title, show their role, which episodes they worked on, instead of just lumping them all in, lumping everyone in the creator bucket and then not giving them the credit. It's like not saying their their role, it's just, ah. Uh. And then Zaslav apparently was at Cannes and they threw some really lavish party yeah, um, yeah, yeah. to launch the idol. And so they're like, you know, we just want to, show people that we're still flexing. And it's like, hey, well, it's somber for writers. I don't know. Well, it's like, know your audience, man. I mean, and and have some some like sense of what's going on in the world. Like Paul, you said, writers, directors, producers were all lumped into one category called creators. So I saw a screenshot of The Sopranos on the Max platform. Under creators, they had Matthew Weiner, uh, who is the creator of Mad Men as one of the quote unquote creators of The Sopranos, where he was just a writer and executive producer. But it becomes very confusing. Like he didn't co-create The Sopranos. He was a writer and then an executive producer on it. And I think everyone's just like, guys, take what we do seriously. And then, of course, it was blamed on a tech issue. They didn't have enough time to move the data, et cetera, et cetera. They immediately went into damage control mode. They're like, it was an oversight and we'll we'll fix it. <laughs> but it could take a while to fix and I'll say this, like, you know, when you're representing talent, when you're working on stuff, especially when I was at Marvel, you know, we did look forward to getting that production attorney, senior production yeah, attorney yeah, yeah, credit yeah. because, yeah. like, you know, you put your blood, sweat, and tears into a film and your role is, like, different than 
you know, the cast of hundreds of other people that are working on. So if you're the showrunner or the executive story editor or whatever, you can tell your friends and family like, hey, go look for my name in the, at the end of this movie or at the end of this TV show. Yeah. And so when you just lump everyone together and you don't, it's just, I don't know. It, it seems like an easily <laughs> avoidable thing that they could have done. Uh, I mean, if I was working as like an assistant to somebody, assistant to an assistant to an assistant to somebody and I got credits on there and I got thrown in on the creators thing, not going to lie, I would be pretty, I would definitely show my parents that. Like, check it out, guys. I'm I'm a creator. Oh, but I don't think the they show. put assistants in the creators. <laughs> no, I, I'm just making a joke about it. You know, there's always pressure to get the credits, uh, at least in film. Like the credit runtime has to get condensed and condensed. And then what you end up having is like four columns of names just going by at light speed. But in this case, I just they already had the credits. It was just it, yeah. You know why not just separate uh, them? I mean, anyway. a big company launching a new app. It's always going to have some. Something. I mean, look, I would even say like, mo like I wasn't even that big of a fan of the HBO Max app. Uh, I loved HBO Max. I wasn't really a fan of the app. So I think it got unnecessary flack. And honestly, I didn't also i I didn't have any issues getting Max, uh, downloading it, and installing it. So as long as it works for the finale, um, and we'll know by the time this episode airs. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited either way to check out Succession. Obviously, we'll download the app and. Uh, we'll keep everyone posted on how things progress with Max as a platform. But um, let's take a break, and then we're going to get back and talk about Cineworld, owner of Regal Cinemas, and how they might emerge from Chapter 11. So, Mesh, jumping back in, we talked about this last season in Episodes 31 and 34, just really brief overview, but if you want a deeper dive, you can check out those episodes. September 2022, Cineworld, which was the second largest theater operator in the world, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And I, at the time, and I'll say it again, I am not a restructuring lawyer, but sometimes I work on restructuring deals. Like if our firm is involved in a restructuring in the media or entertainment space, sometimes I'll, I'll get involved. And sometimes we have clients that are bidding for assets that are in bankruptcy, because sometimes you can find a bargain in you know a company that might have some solid fundamentals or a path to success. Maybe it can generate cash, but it just saddled with debt or has a bunch of bad contracts. But once it sheds those, it can become a good company again. And actually, I started my career in one of the best bankruptcy sort of case studies of all time, which is Marvel, because Marvel was bankrupt in the right, in, right, in the late course. 90s, and then it rose to prominence, then got bought by Disney. So bankruptcy, it's kind of a, I don't know, bad word in the sense that it demolishes shareholders or wipes them out, but it can also allow companies to flourish. Yeah. And in the process, judges have a lot of discretion. So just going back to Cineworld, it's a UK company, but they filed for bankruptcy in, in, the, in Texas. And- they, by all accounts, were victims of really bad timing because they were aggressively growing in 2018. And as you said, they bought Regal in 2018, took on a bunch of debt to do that. And then boom, pandemic hits and theaters are closed. So their revenue went from probably like 300 million to 50 million during, the, yeah. during 2020. And at the same time, their debt ballooned. So yes. they're- I think something like their debt went up 50x. So it went from like, I've seen varying reports. It went from 200 million or so 
to I'm seeing some reports are like five billion in debt, others are like nine billion in debt. Either way, Jesus, it's, man. it's like almost fifty X. The payment of that debt is so it's like significantly more than the income they were generating. They're doing better now, right? Like more people are going to theaters and you can see it. It's not quite what it was pre-pandemic, but they're they're doing okay. The revenue is probably the best it's been since 2018 or 19. And they're operating at like a 30% gross margin. But the thing is they have so much debt now that all of their money goes to yeah. financing their debt. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's unsustainable. And so that's why they're in bankruptcy. But the update is that they've reached a deal with their creditors. I guess creditors representing 99% of their revolving credit and I think 70, almost 70% of all their debt. They've approved this plan for people who may not be familiar. When you take on debt, right? Like you you get a loan, you get money up front to fund your operations or whatever, to buy theaters, and then you have to pay that money back plus interest. And sometimes that interest is fixed, sometimes it's floating. Sometimes that debt is secured by collateral and sometimes it's unsecured. And there's all these different right. formulations. Another way companies raise capital is through equity. Equity is ownership. You know, you're giving up ownership in the company for investment. And so if the company does really well, that equity can become very valuable. Whereas debt is capped, you know, the return is fixed, but sometimes there's convertible debt and all that. It gets complicated. But the basic idea is equity is riskier. And if you're an equity holder in a company that goes bankrupt, you pretty much have are left with nothing, right? Like your equity right, becomes right. worthless. It's extinguished. And the creditors are left fighting over what's left. And the secured creditors, right. um, they actually have claims to collateral. So they have the most power in this whole process because right. they can just say, well, if you don't pay us, then we'll take the assets, right? Yeah, exactly. That's like on the capital stack, senior lenders are on the top. To your point, if they're selling movie theaters to, to raise money, then that goes to senior lenders. Then you have the lenders beneath them. Then you have the equity holders at the bottom, which is usually the ones you get wiped out. And, and this is the case right now. What's happening? The restructuring of this will wipe out all shareholders. I was actually looking at the stock. It's not a pretty picture. It's down yeah, 99.5%. It's market cap is 13.7 million pounds. It's trading at 1P. Um, and at one point, you know, it was trading at four pounds. So that's just to give you an example of um, what happened. Around 2019, um, it was trading around four pounds. And then now um, this thing's been wiped. So all those shareholders are going to be wiped. But I mean, on on the plus side, it can stay in business, you know? And I, and I think that's an important thing here. Well, and yeah, that's, a, yeah. So they've continued to operate their theaters. I mean, they, I think they've gotten out of a few leases that were bad. They've sold a few theaters, but by and large, it's been operating as usual. And they've even honored their um, customer loyalty programs, which I think you have to do to remain competitive because like, let's say you had all these rewards or you were part of a subscription plan for Regal and you know all of a sudden they're like, oh, we're going bankrupt. So all those rewards, you, you got to pay full price for your popcorn or whatever. So that would that would also hurt the revenue side because people that were in that, you know, you don't want to piss off your most loyal customers. So they're, they're keeping that going, but their shareholders are getting wiped out. And I don't know exactly what the plan is. It hasn't been announced, but it's been announced. The plan has been approved by the majority of lenders. Usually what happens is, you know, the lenders agree to take some percentage to write off some percentage of the debt, maybe to give more favorable interest terms or payment terms. And then they get, some equity in this new 
company that doesn't have the same level of liabilities. So the theory is that like they're they're betting on the management and saying, okay, well, we don't think this company is hopeless. We we realize the pandemic came at a really bad time and they were in a growth mode, but we still believe in the business. And so I, we believe that maybe they'll have different people running it, but generally speaking, it, you're not scrapping the business, which is chapter seven of the bankruptcy code. Chapter 11 right. is a restructuring, right. but it's tricky. You can tell that it's running completely normal. I, I just was at a Regal. You know, we have a few Regals in New York. We got the Regal Battery Park. One of the most popular cinemas, Regal Union Square, um, the Union Square location. And then there's another one in the Lower East Side. And um, I go to the Union Square one a lot. I've been going there for the last 10 years. I go to the Battery Park one to watch movies with my cousin. We're actually going to go watch F- Fast X there. And it's it does, it's like really nice. They're very clean. They operate really well. Uh, you know, I'm generally a fan of AMC more only because they have the Coke machine where you can choose your flavors. That's the only reason why you get I get your like caffeine free. Yeah, I can get my caffeine free and then I go to Regal and I just get water. But that's the only reason why I go to one or the other. But other than that, let's see what happens, man. I, I think, look, they had a tough time. COVID was not a, a friend to them. And let's see how they pull out of this. Apart from the debt, it looks like the rest of their business has promise. And so maybe it's just a matter of pulling that debt under control, getting out of some bad loans or bad leases and making good decisions moving forward. But it is unfortunate for any existing shareholders because, you know, your investment's basically zero. It is unfortunate. And we'll we'll just see what happens there. And ideally, look, we hope that Movie theaters continue to do well. I'm going to go keep seeing movies in theater. I know, Paul, occasionally you will too. And I plan to go see some this week. Memorial Day weekend is, you know, the unofficial start to summer. It's a big movie weekend. And that's why there's Fast X and Little Mermaid. And and there's a lot more in store for this summer. There's a lot more coming. So excited about all that. But good breakdown as always, Paul. That's our show for this week, folks. Hope everyone had a great Memorial Day weekend. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen, on Instagram and TikTok. Thanks, Jess. At Better Call Paul, the podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Meshlakani. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone.